I don't want a pickle, just want to ride on my motorcycle. Hello, one and all. Welcome to the Nokomoto podcast, episode number 76. I'm your host, MotoGP, and with me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. Coming to you from the Moto One Podcast Network Studios, which is also Nokomoto headquarters here in Northern Colorado, going out to over 40 countries worldwide. And we enjoyed another one of our 300 days of sunshine here in Northern Colorado for the second week in a row. We're making it a thing, right? It's totally a thing. So let's see. On this episode, it's just a, us two again, no other guests. Table of contents here for y'all. We're going to do best worst bike. At some point, we've got just one email that we're going to do. I've got a history of Bomoda that we're going to go into. And then we've also got awesome racing news, primarily Moto E we're going to talk about. And I think that's going to be a pretty good show. So moving right into it, do we have anything we need to cover or can we jump straight into best worst? What do you say? Uh, I think to start off with, we should do a little bit of an update for Rocco Landers. Oh, that's right. Yes. Do you have that in front of you? I do. Okay. So basically, uh, Rocco Landers child prodigy who is kicking ass and taking names in moto america who's won six out of eight races so far and is looking like the hot new talent that's actually going to bring america back up onto the world stage in road racing has unfortunately run out of sponsorship money and they need some more money to keep racing uh so i don't know how to put this Basically, the calls are going out. They have, Rocco has not asked us to say this, but if anyone of our listeners out there knows anyone interested in sponsoring a race team, this is a real good one to go with. Yeah, or if you want to just chip in a few bucks as well, he's got to go fund me. Uh, I know I'm going to put some money in because this is because I'm going to look like a genius when right. everybody else figures out who this kid is. We need to send him a Nokomoto sticker. If you actually like Venmo him money, then technically Nokomoto is sponsoring them. You can put a sticker on the bike. <laughs> yeah. I, can you imagine being the best in your class, the best in a national racing series, the best at what you do, and you just run out of money and therefore you can't do it anymore? That's tragic. Yeah. Somebody with... Uh with a line to Keanu Reeves needs to needs to jump on this and yeah, sort this out. Anyone knows a big time motorcycle enthusiast, Keanu Reeves, Vanilla Ice, whatever. Someone needs to do something about this. If I wasn't going through a lot of the crazy things I'm going through and I had money, I'd send it to him. Trust me. But th those that know me personally know I can't do that. But I God, I wish I could. So we're going to we're helping get the word out. So. I think that really is all there is to say about that. It's sad, but hopefully there's going to be a happy ending there. All right. So then we're going to move on to best worst. Let's do it. Okay. So here's the disclaimer. Every week we each pick 
a different motorcycle, each to be the best and the worst bike in the world this week, alternating who has best and worst. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's a surprise. Now, keep in mind, this is really just a fun way to talk about two motorcycles you might not normally take a look at. So... Don't get all bent out of shape about it. You can send us an angry email or a pretty fairly evenly worded email, like Matt did, that we'll read later. And you can send that to contact at nocomotopodcast.com. You thought I was going to get it wrong, looking at me weird there. Yeah, I normally get the email wrong, okay? So sue me. So send us that email. But, you know, if if you still just can't bring yourself to make it even worded, just before you sit down at your computer, just as you're pa- typing in your password, remember Bill Gates' password, all one word, lowercase, is there's no crying in motorcycles. Boom. Okay. <laughs> so you've got best bike in the world this week. I do. All right. You ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And the best bike in the world this week is? The BMW K1600. Okay. I'm... uh, Okay, I've heard plenty of things. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Okay, so this has all of the fancy electronic features that the uh, 1200GS has, but this is actually... A proper road touring bike which let's be realistic that's what a lot of the 1250 gs's are going to do yes so this is actually built for purpose but it's not just another big flat twin this is an inline six not only that but it must be the biggest inline six ever as well i believe so It's a 1.6 liter. Because the SEI was a 750 and then a 900. The CBX was one liter. I'm struggling to come up with any other big inline sixes. I mean, you know, Honda made plenty of, you know, 250 inline sixes and weird shit like that. But I don't think after one liter, I mean, someone must have made a weird 1200 at some point or something. Oh, no, no, no. no. There There was a Yamaha. 1200 inline six i know there was so yeah for so by 400 cc's the biggest inline six it's a big thing i mean it's hard to tread into an engine and a displacement and a configuration that hasn't been done not just once but many times before these days so bravo to bmw for just going there right yeah, and also just kind of stepping outside their their comfort zone. I mean, they do have some sweet inline fours, and they've been making them for a while, but always kind of hesitantly. And this is just going all out on it, and it's kind of a flagship project uh, product. I mean, really, they they've always in their marketing, it's always the twelfth, the the GS, but really, this is kind of their ultimate ridiculous bike now the way they've set it up is pretty clever as well because this bike is not actually that ridiculously you know it's not physically imposing like you might think it is being a 1600 
I've heard it's sized very similar to the new Goldwing, which is a lot yes. smaller than you would expect also. Right. On top of that, they've gone, you can actually see in the picture, they've kind of gone with like, um, with like the NC 700 style of mounting where it's angled forward. So the weight's really low down, mm. which makes it, which kind of gives it a center of gravity and a weight similar to the Goldwing. Yeah, it's almost like a straight flat six, almost. Because like the way that engine's tipped forward, it's more horizontal than it is vertical. Yeah. So you've got that really low down forward weight, very similar to the Goldwing. And, you know, it's also it's also a flagship bike with a weird engine that nobody else is really making right now. So it's got its own distinct character there as well. Uh, this also comes with a seven gallon tank. What? Right. And that was kind of one of the things they did with the Goldwing is as part of putting it on a diet and getting the weight down, they actually kept the fuel uh, the they kept the they range up to the efficiency so they could decrease the amount of fuel yeah to drop the weight as part of putting it on its diet yeah and this thing is i was well why don't i look it up i've got it in front of me this is 736 pounds wet which in this class of bike yeah it, it that's not a good number it's not a bad number that's kind of about where it should be I think that's actually pretty good for how for how big this bike is, especially when you look at the numbers. I know, but there's 20, 25 pounds there of it just not coming stock with the top box and, and some other things like that. Yeah, but how much does that matter when you have 160 horsepower and 129 foot-pounds of torque? Right. Also, you make about 70% of that at 1500 rpm which for an inline six is kind of ridiculous normally you would expect to have to spin up quite a bit to actually get some of that torque and power available but it comes in pretty low especially considering max torque is at 5500 this motorcycle has slightly more power and more engine and about a sixth of the weight of my Camry. Well, no, I suppose it's a few cc's less, but it's two more cylinders. It's about the same horsepower. This has more torque and horsepower than Oliver's car. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's got more. It's, it's roughly double my Fiesta in almost every way. Yeah. Th this could tow my Fiesta, no problem. Yeah. It... No, this is serious. This is a big, bulky tour, tourer, but you legit have superbike, like one liter superbike speed performance out of this. I don't know if that's quite the case. That's a little bit of a stretch. Maybe not the cornering ability, but that kind of acceleration. Uh, off, the extra yeah, torque. The, I the, mean, the torque to weight ratio for sure. I'm. I don't know if that translates well to the ground and it is still um it is the shaft drive you're losing some power that's true okay it is also um it, it is also a inline six across the frame so that shaft drive is making two 90 degree turns so that's you, true 
you are losing quite a bit of power there. I mean, you're still getting at least 95 foot-pounds of torque to the rear wheel. Yeah. Like, so it's still bonkers. But I I feel like this bike is a little bit underappreciated because everyone see everyone hears about it. It's like, oh, yeah, it's an inline six. It's 1,600 cc's. And for a minute, everyone's like, whoa, and then promptly forgets about it. But in its own way, this is... This is comparable to the Goldwing. It's got similar numbers. It's similarly priced. It's got its own character and its own unique motor. It's got the carrying capacity. And it's out of character for BMW as well. Yeah. Now this is going to have the the wishbone front suspension as well, isn't it? Yes. And it's also got the electronic... Um, it's also got the electronic suspension adjustment as well. Now, I need, I'm need. i going to ask you a question. This is the BMW 1600 GT. Is there a GTS model? Uh, no, there's a GTL model. Oh, so close. But the, the, that's with, like with the top box and the full trim. Because weirdly, weirdly, in spirit, I feel the closest motorcycle to this that's really ever existed is the Suzuki GTS 1000. That's the weird center hub steering one that almost had a brilliant system, but it kind of didn't work. Don't you mean the Yamaha? Sorry, Yamaha, not Suzuki. The Yamaha GTS. Good call. Uh, look at the frame on this. Remember on the, the Yamaha GTS, it was that Omega frame? Well, if you realize that the engine is a stressed member of this, it's that same sort of Omega frame shape. And then they both have a weird front suspension where the suspension and the steering aren't necessarily totally connected. Yeah. It's a big liter plus, you know, sport-ish sort of tourer. This is what the Yamaha GTS kind of should have been. This is the modern version, except it works. Rather than being this weird, bastardized, ripped-off, stolen suspension idea turned into an overweight sports tour yeah that makes that actually that makes a lot of sense i'm a genius i know okay so i've seen some side-by-side -side comparisons everyone wants to compare this to the goldwing right mm -hmm. they're like well you know when it's got that huge tank but at the end of the day its range is pretty similar to the goldwing at the end of the day, the way it rides is pretty similar. At the end of the day, the performance is still really good out of both. The handling is still really good out of both, like way better than you would think on either of them. What's the price versus the Goldwing? So base price on the GTL, the top trim option, is uh, $26,000. That's about what the Goldwings go up to, roughly. Uh, I know you could spend more than 30 on a Goldwing easy, but I mean, you know, for as the base model of the of the Goldwing touring, right, is somewhere around there. Yeah, the lowest uh, MSRP for a Goldwing, like without which was really like the base FB6 platform is 24,000. Well, that's the F6B or F6B. Yeah. And you can go up to you know like $35,000 with every single option and the airbag 
Right. But, you know, the top box, the 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 actual Goldwing Goldwing, not the one with last year's engine or anything like that. The one with the new four valve heads, all that stuff. We're in mid 20s there. Yeah. Yeah. OK. But you can get a version of this, which is cheaper than 26. Uh, Let's see. Because I imagine this comes with a lot of standard bells and whistles. Like you said, all the 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 BMW stuff, your automatic adjusting suspension and all that sort of nonsense. I am wondering if it does work out a couple grand in your favor for all those different single things. When you really spec each one out, is this one a great deal that way? I mean, all of these bikes are going to massively depreciate right away. Oh, yeah. I, I guess when you're in okay. this kind of market and you can throw this kind of money at a bike... If it's a difference of two to three thousand dollars, are you you know get what you like, right? Because yeah. you're spending too much money anyway. So the GT is twenty three thousand dollars MSRP. So yeah, so this is yeah about a thousand bucks cheaper, base model to base model. Um, I think the F six B looks a bit cooler, but I mean. W- <sighs> That's not really what you get these bikes for. You get them because you're into just eating miles and you want a really good bike for it. Yeah, but you can also buy this. Here's the thing. You can get, you can basically have your Goldwing without having to cross battle lines. Right. If you've been a BMW guy your whole life, you can have your Goldwing you're not compromising on your allegiances and it's legit. Yeah. And the new Goldwing is a very different breed than it was before, but the name Goldwing still carries a bit of geezer glide reputation, right? Are we going to pretend that BMW doesn't? It does, but it's not like, the the Harley Electroglide and the Goldwing have been in a fierce competition for what really is the weapon of choice for retired dudes, right? Yeah. It, I mean, it, we're and we're talking like Coke versus Pepsi. We're talking McDonald's versus Burger King here. This has been big leagues like at each other's throats who can add on more bells and whistles and ridiculous price tags and insane luxury and unreasonable resale asking prices for a long time for dominance you know which one you know if you were to name the motorcycle to most likely be carried in its own trailer behind an rv a BMW doesn't make that short list. So like you're saying, you get to have your gold wing. You don't cross, you know, party lines, but there's also just a cultural line you're not crossing here. That is, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I like I guess, that. I guess the gold wing. Yeah. The gold wing and the Electroglide are kind of the choice for retirees. You're still kind of a geezer with the K1600. But you're also telling everyone that you're still employed. Yes. There we go. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay. Have we got anything else or should we move to worse bike? Uh, let's move on. We're good. Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is, I couldn't help myself. It's another Bimota. 
the Bimota Tessie 1D. Now, I've said some harsh things in the past about center hub steering. And I'm going to say that this bike is a little bit of an exception. And so this forces us to explain some things about center hub steering, because the funny thing about this motorcycle is it's actually an excellent motorcycle. The problem is there's no greater example of great execution it's not even great execution. It, this motorcycle is just a waste of great ideas. So what do I mean? Is this like the Juicero of motorcycles? Uh, kind of, yeah. So it's powered by the Ducati 851 engine. I want to say this came out in 1990. So the Ducati 851 was pretty new. So this is the first Ducati motor in a bimoda? Yes. And we'll get into some of that history when we get to some bimoda history in a minute. But this is sort of the most bimoda bimoda. And in fact, bimoda used to say that quite a lot. This is the bike that really embodies what the company's all about. So I'm just looking at this now and it looks like they forgot to put a seat on it. And they just cut up some material for some tank grips and just stretched it over the bodywork. That's kind of just what they did. This, when you talk about a no compromise motorcycle, this is what we're talking about. This was so one off, but not one off. It was meant for production. This was meant to be a prototype race bike you could buy. So, Okay, let's backtrack. Let's backtrack. This, this is so. This is a V-twin Ducati-powered racing motorcycle, street legal, barely with center hub steering. Now, the center hub steering is really, really important. And why is that important? Well, technically, center hub steering will work better when you remove your suspension from your steering you get better handling in corners. You just do. Because the problem with forks is, one, when those forks dive, right, you're changing their length. So you're changing the length of your wheelbase. So it's a weird thing. The, the way your bike handles changes when the forks are compressed or uncompressed. That's a problem. Also, forks flex a lot. It's a weird thing, but they have to engineer for how it happens. So you're saying to yourself, well, okay, if center hub steering works better, why don't they do that in racing? Because it requires a lot of linkage, a lot of expensive parts. And when you're into prototype racing and or just racing in general, guess what? Bikes crash and you can't fix this stuff on the fly readily. It turns out forks work well enough and they're cheap enough and readily available that it's way more practical to use them in racing still. Yeah, you might have a team with center hub steering and a rider that's learned to use it, and they might do great until they crash. 
And how are you going to build this program up from the bottom? You can't just change a whole frame and you know, and just jump into MotoGP with something like this without years of testing and whatever. And who's going to take a risk on this idea? Center hub steering is an idea that's too good to work. It's too expensive to implement. Yeah, I can imagine just in terms of setup and adjusting it. And yeah, if you crash the bike, how quickly can can you swap this out between free practice and qualifying? Right. And, and which kind of suspension and steering guys are you going to hire to work on this? How many experts are there right now? What about... Uh, what about, um, I mean, I guess you, the geometry of the bike won't change, so you can't really take advantage of that going into turns. Yeah, it's just, it's a weird thing, okay? And, and there's so too, many... It's just too late to rewrite the rule book. Exactly. So, for whatever reason, in 1990, well, I'll tell you the reason. In 1990, Bimoto decided to make a bike that would be a essentially one liter superbike race competitive bike. This was designed that the public could buy it, but also race teams would buy it and race it, but no one could afford to do it. This was the most expensive motorcycle in the world in 1990. This cost more than a Honda NR750. What? I can't even find an accurate, reliable source on exactly the number and what it cost. This first one, they only made 20 of. Now, the, here's why it's the worst bike in the world. There's a small possibility you can still buy one of these brand new today. Not the Tessie 1D, but there was a 2D and a 3D now as well. Bimota fell in love with this bike because it is the ultimate in no compromise. It is a bike so uncompromised, racing can't even afford it. It's a waste of good ideas. Okay. I that's why it doesn't have a real seat. They're like, that extra foam, that's, that's waste. This is a prototype racing bike that they just happened to make 20 of. And not only that, a completely outlandish one. If they, you're only going to make 20 of them, how could you ever expect to race it? So they thought they were going to make a lot more than that. They were hoping this would become sort of a hit. This was kind of like, this is around like five, six years before they made the v Mm -hmm. They kind of made the Vidu. They made this to do the same thing they thought the Vidu was going to do. They thought, oh, we missed the mark. What people want is a more traditional GP style bike. And we all know <laughs> what happened with that, right? Yeah. It's it's supposed to this bike's supposed to have some of the best brakes ever. The way that they're mounted at the bottom there and with the double discs. And the way those work with the the hub center steering, it's supposed to just be fantastic. I mean, it's a bimoda, and especially when you look at it at different angles, it looks kind of odd from the side. But when you start getting different angles of it all around, even though it has hub center steering, the more you look at it, you, the more you start to get it, and it does actually kind of look pretty cool and pretty good. 
and especially when you put it next to other bikes in 1990. Oh, okay. Yeah, I see. It doesn't look as unusual as a hub center steering bike normally does, right? I do love how on all of these race bikes, they've got these weirdly mounted mirrors because the first thing you're supposed to, and they're really shitty as well. Yeah, because you're going to take them off to race it. Exactly. You're right. This is supposed to be a really great, fast, just lightweight, sweet handling, awesome motorcycle. It's objectively a wonderful machine. It's weird and rare. It's from a recognized name and it doesn't exist anymore. And it's kind of the model the company was most proud of and really embodies what the company did. It's almost one of a kind. It's so custom, but also, you know, small batch production, almost racing homologated. I mean, it hits so many sweet spots. It just couldn't even come close to doing what they built it to do, right? Even though it's wonderful, it's still a complete failure for its original intended purpose. Now, I have no idea what these are worth today, but I think about 10 years ago, one sold at auction for about $85,000. Going to guess these are worth over a hundred grand now. Yeah, yeah, that's about in line with I think I think the last NR750 that went on sale was like $110,000. Yeah. That was quite a while ago. This is that kind of thing. This is for Keanu Reeves and Nicolas Cage only anymore, unfortunately. This is you it doesn't matter that you might have $100,000 to buy one. You're not well connected enough to know someone that knows someone to find out where to buy one when one does finally come on sale. Like you just don't know the people. This is unobtainium because not just because it's expensive, only an exclusive circle of people have these kinds of motorcycles. So, yeah. I mean, but it's historic in a way and it's groundbreaking in many ways and it's, it's beautiful in a lot of ways, but it's kind of just a waste. And, and this is weird to say, this might be the first worst bike in the world that I'd kind of like to have. I mean, I wouldn't say no. So it's even unusual as a worst bike in the world. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I wouldn't even mind having like a 2D or a 3D. The 2D and the 3D looks very different. Not entirely unpleasing, but you know, based on different engines and things and whatever. But it's a continuation of the hub center steering. The basic concept remained the same, except they stopped pretending that anyone was going to race them. And that's really the biggest difference between this first generation of the Tessie and the second and third generations. So, yeah, there you go. You really just have to see a picture of this thing. And, you know, when you put it in the context of a weird, super exotic Italian high-performance thing, the way it looks, it's jarring at first, but it starts making sense after a minute. And especially when you put it right next to the Ducati 851, which is so cool, and you realize, okay, one's $8,000, and one's at minimum 85. You know, they've both got the same engine, but what's really going on? Like, they are worlds apart. Yeah. So, yeah, there we go. 
unfortunately, the worst bike in the world this week. Considerably better than a car. Considerably better than a car. <laughs> okay, let's, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do it again. Here's the rev limiter. And we're back. So it's time to talk about racing. Moto E, electric motorcycle racing has finally happened. Yes. Was it weird? Was it interesting? Was it good? Was it fucked up? It was all these things. It was. It, the first, first weekend, a little bit of a shit show, but showing a lot of promise. Okay, as a fan, as a motorcycle enthusiast, you know, in my heart, it's it was a six out of ten. But I have to give the FIM or or um, not the FIM who Dorna. I have to give Dorna a three out of ten on performance and presentation on this one. It's like they hate their own series. A little bit. Yeah. They are not doing this right, but but I but like I said, as a fan, I give it six out of ten because I can see where it's going. We should back up and explain a little bit of this, just for people who have had their heads under rocks. Just explain the bikes and some of the tech and set this up for us. So, this is a fully electric motorcycle uh, series. Tagging along with MotoGP, they're doing six races this year. I think they, they intended to do more. I think they wanted to do ten, they or wanted, at least eight. They yeah. wanted to do eight or ten. Unfortunately, all the bikes burnt to the ground in a fire. And that was right Whoops. before Hareth, right? Uh, it was at Hareth. Okay. Because that's where all the bikes were. So all of the bikes are um, made by Energica which is a kind of boutique electric motorcycle company that just scored the contract to make them. It's like lightning motorcycles, but made in Europe. Yeah. So it's not lightning. It's a company like lightning in Europe. Yeah. So small manufacturer got the contract. And so everybody is riding the exact same bike. Basically they just, they, each team's just been given them. They do setup. And that's kind of it. And then they go race. So it is a spec league. Do they right even now. have tire choices? Uh, I'm not sure, but I don't think it would really matter because there's no data. At yeah. an eight to 10 lap race with no data, I think most of them are going to go with the same tires anyway. Yeah. So that's kind of the groundwork. Now, in terms of the riders, they've kind of. Well, it's what you would expect. It's it's the kind of lineup you would expect if the XFL came back and they had like <laughs> one year. <laughs> that is exactly what it's like. <laughs> to put 32 teams together. Like Yeah, there's some interesting names. I was really stoked to see Maria Herrera on there, mm. who's I think the only female rider that's made it into Moto Three. Uh, I believe so. I, um, I'm afraid to commit to that statement. 
but okay. Well, someone um, apparently, yeah, I believe so. Okay, someone managed to find find a hidden door in like Tutankhamun's tomb and pulled back Sete's gibber now to write in this dude. You say he's forty six now? Yes, that's crazy. Why not just bring back Giacomo Agostini at this point? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it, it's gibber now. Like, you know, he's gibber now. He knows things about riding bikes. But, yeah, they, they padded the line a little bit. We've got uh, two different MotoGP names. We've got gibber now. And then we had Bradley Smith. Yep. And then the rest is just kind of a who's who of... um people that fell out of moto two or are now test riders and th things like that. Yeah. So it's kind of a, there's a broad skill range and they kind of threw a bunch of them together and it's kind of good because, you know, it's, they're doing two things. One, there's some high profile names in there. If you follow racing, there's people in there that you should know. You have to have had followed racing for a while to know these names. That's true. But there are some there's some name recognition in there. But it's also, you know, they, they've just got to fill out the field to start with. And then if you're a young rider and maybe you don't want to retire to World Superbike or British Superbike, you can just say, hey, let's try Moto E. It's fewer races. It's a different kind of bike. And you're looking at the names of who's in the current league and you can think, I could take those guys. So there's there's a place for talent to fill it up eventually. I, a lot of these names are going to cycle out pretty quickly. Oh, yes. So but, you know, it's the very first year got off to a rocky start and let's talk about exactly how rocky so the qualifying is very special. I think the format was actually a really good idea. Uh, the, okay, so that's been talked about. If you don't know what Super Pole is, this uses a Super Pole qualifying system, which basically means everyone goes out on the track one at a time and does like a warm-up lap and then one hot flying lap, and that's it. You're just going to do it once. How fast can you go right out of the gates? That's your qualifying time. That's it. Which is a cool and legit way to do qualifying. Hasn't been done that way in motorcycle racing for a while. Like NASCAR does it that way. IndyCar, I think, does it that way. At least the last time I followed any IndyCar, they did it that way. I can't remember. Anyway. But walk us through, because I'm going to fuck up a detail. What happened with the very first rider doing the very first Super Pole lap? The very first time one of these bikes hit the track in anger? So they came up with an interesting system. Because anywhere you race in the world, there is a very simple system. Red lights come on. Red lights go out, and you go. Also, out in the real world, we have this universal system for telling traffic when to stop and go. You would think that for a track that, for a system that nobody had done before, you might want to use some familiarity and set up a system like one of those two. This is not 
what Dorna did. They had this ridiculous like set of arches on wheels with a TV screen on it and multiple countdowns and just put it in front of a rider, which I presume no rider has actually seen this before until How could they have it's the only one that exists they've got this weird shoot that the riders have to go through which exists in no other racing and didn't exist in traditional super pole qualifying because they go around the course it doesn't matter what's timed is their flying lap which means their lap starts as they cross the start line at speed yeah so every rider gets like a 30 second notice to go up to the lights or to up to the gate. Yeah. And then they have a five second window to leave. Why though? Why can't they just be told you're good to start your lap that doesn't count because we're going to time your flying lap afterwards? Because it's racing and the rules have to be complicated. It's I don't know so why. It's so dumb. They so, just invented. Okay, so I'll Maria tell you Herrera why they invent- and okay. I can't remember who, but the last rider as well, Maria Herrera went too early before the window and got disqualified and got black flagged for and lost her time. And what did she do? She left when the light changed color. That's all she did. She sat there in her defense. The light changed color and like. Any person, especially a racer, would do a person who's been nothing but conditioned to just go, not just go, go and move your throttle hand quicker than anyone else on the fucking planet can do it. The moment the light goes out or changes color or changes, you are doing those snap reactions. They, these riders train. For this kind of shit. They have these like walls with all these buttons they have to press. And they have to do the like quick twitch reaction stuff. And you put a person that's done nothing but train like that. Their whole fucking life. You put them in front of this weird shoot they've never seen before. What do you think's going to happen? Yeah. So so that happened. So, so but purely as a matter that, of process. She did it. Everyone else saw her do it, was like, I'm not going to do that. And like the eighth guy did it again because that's just your reaction. Yeah, it's not a great system. Okay, so I think we should talk about the bikes themselves and what it was actually like to watch the bikes on the track. And I'm sure you can all pull up a video of this. It's going to be out there somewhere. Yeah. But this is why I do think the Super Pole idea was a good idea getting to actually see the bikes go out because I don't know what your initial reaction was, but for me, the complete lack of engine noise doesn't really matter, especially given that the way they do the sound, you can just adjust the audio that you're recording from the track so that the motor whine is as loud as the motorcycle exhaust is Yeah, on TV. I wish someone would have told the commentators this would have been good. The, the constant mentioning like every what 15, 20, 40 seconds, we would go 40 seconds at most without them trying to justify why there's not a bunch of loud, unrestricted exhaust. 
Yeah, it was it was basically a broadcast of electric motorcycle apologetics. At one moment, this bike goes by a camera and they'd clearly just turned a microphone on next to the camera close to the track. The bike goes by and one of the commentators said, wow, did you hear all of that noise? This was artificially loud because of a microphone stuck next to the track. Now, yes, the sound coming through your TV or headphones or whatever would have sounded loud, but this is an object which, out in the real world just observing it, was near silent. But they were in such a competition with each other to try to see who could play up this dynamic that they don't sound the same. Like, who gives a fuck? Well, not only that, but... It's pretty evident what the product is. Yeah. If Okay, let's say this is a giant problem for a lot of people. Why do you keep calling attention to it? Yeah, it's a weird move. They're not focusing on the strengths. So there's two things that I think are going to be really cool. Well, one thing that is really cool and one thing that's going to be really cool. The first is without the engine noise you can hear every single time a tire breaks traction and slides. That's true. That was really cool. And it just kind of draws your attention to an element that if you haven't been watching, you know, when you watch your first motorcycle race, you don't really pay attention to that stuff and you don't pick up on it as much. And you right. know, when someone's sliding around quite as much, you know, cause it can be kind of subtle, but it's not subtle on these bikes with the ridiculous torque they have and the sound of being able to hear the tires squeal, it draws a lot of attention to it. And it's actually kind of awesome. It is. Also, they haven't really figured out their, how to ride them. So the rider skill level is all over the place right now. I, it's going to develop more as this goes on, but they're not even can, hold on, can we talk about how they're not even allowed to practice with them for a minute? Let, yeah. can, let's just cover this insane fact that the, this production motorcycle. Oh, by the way, you're not allowed to practice on them. Like they're they've they've not been allowed to practice on them. Yeah, it's a little weird. I mean, I can see it from a certain perspective of a lot of these Riders aren't getting paid very much to ride these. So they're probably trying to keep the team costs down. And so they don't want everyone to go out and just buy one of these to go practice in the op. But what's stopping them? Just the rules. Ugh, ridiculous. Um, but there's that. But also, um, yeah, it's it's interesting because... The bikes are, you know, you don't have it in much the same way that a 250 or a 300 rides completely differently from a super sport rides completely differently from a super bike because your weight and your acceleration, your top speed, your torque all change your lines, whether you want to maintain speed through a corner or whether you want to brake hard and then point and shoot. Right. The electric bikes have significantly more horsepower than the, than the super sports do. 
but they have way more torque than the super bikes do. So it's a, they don't ride like super sports and they don't ride like super bikes do. And they're way heavier as well. So nobody really knows what the correct lines are to take right. on the track. It's something in between the classes. It's, it's a combination of all the different kinds of, of bike classes rolled into one. It's very odd. Yeah, th- there were some really close moments and some ins- there were some overtakes that looked completely bananas. If you know about motorcycle racing, you'd been like, how could a situation develop like this in GP? Like, I can't come up with it, right? So that was interesting. And then I guess after these, all the people saying that these bikes might be dangerous and the electric naysayers and the fire and harath, I guess everyone's really concerned about safety with these and the batteries blowing up and they have these special lights on the side of them, whether or not the marshals can pull the bikes off or if something has to be red flagged because the batteries compromise. There's some weird stuff going on. There's something to compare this to, but there's, I don't know if all the fear is totally warranted. It's kind of, it's similar to the paranoia of cracking a CFL light bulb where it's like, oh, it's got mercury in it. We're going to have to sell the house now. Like it's a biohazard or not a biohazard. Yeah. It's a it's yeah. a toxic. The house is now a toxic waste dump. You yeah. have to move. It's like, or maybe it's fine. That makes me think I'm going to go way off track here. But do you remember hearing a story in like first grade? I, I had multiple teachers tell me, oh, yeah, people used to think tomatoes were poisonous. And then one day this guy ate a bunch of tomatoes in front of everybody and we realized they weren't. Do, do you remember hearing something stupid like this? No. Really? I, I think people kind of stopped saying this around the t- like third grade or something, but it's patently stupid, right? The tomatoes, what you mean, this this plant that we created as people, right? You know, tomatoes don't just grow in the wild, right? You know, we, we bred them, so to speak, to genetically create through um, artificial selection, this plant that's really good for us to eat, right? Like, who would ever think this was a poison, right? But people just come up with nonsense stories, right? And there's been this nonsense story that these electric bikes can just blow up, which there's not really any evidence to support. Maybe there is something there, but like the people never believed that tomatoes were poisonous, but the fact that people at one point widely did believe that a while ago other people thought tomatoes were poisonous is absurd, right? It's like there's people like, you know, we don't know how bees fly. We do, okay? There's nothing so... The point is, there's nothing so stupid people won't believe it. And I think that aspect is at... That dynamic is at play here with the fear of the batteries in these motorcycles. A little bit. I mean, at one point, one of them is going to go off. And it's going to be spectacular. But is it really going to be all that dangerous of a situation? Not really. I mean, we have had bike. We've had 
MotoGP bikes erupt in flames before. We've never had to have a protocol that said, hang on, we got to get somebody over here to check the bike before you pick it up. Well, the flames are usually a giveaway on that. But yeah, I I get what you're saying. (laughs) Right. But the fact that a bike could go up in flames never stopped any marshals from picking that bike up getting the rider on it and bump starting it and going back down (laughs) the track. It's true. So, yeah, I think it's a little overblown. And I don't know. It's it's kind of weird because they could, you know, it's it's something where there could be a bit of a delayed reaction. They could go off, but they've got the sensors on them. I think it's fine. And it'll probably be a long while until we actually see one go up. Well, okay, so let's talk about the end of this race now. We we had a close front pack in it. There's a little bit there's some good racing going on for a while. And then we had someone in the middle of the pack crash out, destroy an air barrier on lap six of a seven lap race, and then they just called it under red flag. So let's put this in perspective. We've been blue balled pretty Why? hard here. We had canceled races because the entire grid literally burnt down we had qualifying get fucked up because of this insane decision to have this weird like starting shoot that looked like it looked like someone took a prop out of the millennium dome and stuck (laughs) it on the racetrack and then (sighs) millennium dome and then we doesn't it though and then (laughs) we and then we get one i I believe it was there was only one crash during the race right or there two Uh, i believe there were two okay we get two crashes in six laps and one of them stops the race so we don't even get a proper race finish for the very first race winner it was the most lackluster park fermi I've ever seen. So literally every step of this process, either by negligence or just complete idiocy on the part of Dorna, it's like they're trying to railroad this. It's like they're saying, okay, we have the most prestigious motorcycle racing, um, the most prestigious motorcycle racing series in the world and it's gasoline powered it's It's almost conceivable that electric might overtake us one day what if we jump the gun and we create a motorcycle series and try to railroad it so no one ever tries an electric motorcycle racing series again you think they're trying to pull a general motors maybe no they're not then yeah yeah, the famous thing, General Motors trying to ruin electric cars in like the 40s. Yeah, with the uh, the 40s? No, in the 90s. Well, they, they've done with it many e, times. With the EV1. The General Motors has done bullshit electric shit for a long time. Anyway, um, yes. I, no, they're not doing that. But I'm saying their management of this series is so bad, it it's looks indistinguishable that way. from it's it. It's indistinguishable from just all right, all out sabotage. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists that even talk about how Ford may have gone totally electric in the the 40s, but um, Edison's plant burnt down. 
and he supposedly had these super secret batteries, man, and we were all going to go electric in, like, 1943, but, you know, they burnt down his secret batteries, and we've never, you know... there's a, and then with these bikes burning down the beginning of the, there's a lot of weird com- comparisons you can draw. That's not what's happening, but <laughs> it's so stupid. It does look that way. Yeah. So I think we, we also, we, we have to look at this as kind of, this is their first stab at it. Dorn is basically just completely funding this to get it started to like prime it. Um, I don't think it's going to get super interesting until they can get multiple manufacturers into it where they just say, look, we're not going to have spec bikes. We're just going to have spec batteries. You supply the rest of the bike and build a motorcycle around these batteries. They're also going to have to drop the rule that you can't do multiple races in the same weekend. Because it's going to have to draw on talent that people recognize at some point. Yeah, I think that's going to be a factor too. Well, here's one other thing. And I don't know why they don't do it this way since it's not comparable to the other races. Given the limited range on the bikes and how it's a very short race, this is the one time I will advocate do two races each weekend. Yeah, why not? Seven laps. It's not hard to do. (sighs) Like, this is... You know what? Make race one on fucking Friday. I mean, they just need to do... do three races. They just They're doing super pole. They they do a practice session that's, what, 15 to 25 minutes, right? Let's say 25 minutes, you know, in a GP weekend, you can fit that in. I mean, you know, just like they fit in the Moto America guys at uh, at Coda and and mm-hmm. and, and um, how a World Superbike fits in Moto America, Laguna's sake. It's not difficult. Yeah, just do a super pole in the morning and then do a race in after all the races, after all the, no- the other races and just do two races. Or, yeah, or just do them on Friday. Do two races. Do them on Friday and Saturday. It's electric racing, so you don't have to make it a Sunday race and follow with tradition. You can start a new tradition, and you can help boost your sales for those practice and qualifying days for the enthusiasts that want to show up and see the electric racing. Because some of it will be a non-crossover crowd, and they'll appreciate being able to go and not have to fight the masses to see their race. I think you can accomplish that on a, with a Saturday race anyway, but I, I would still do Saturday, Sunday, but yeah. Why hasn't Dorna done this? They already do it with a two race series like Moto America at Austin. Yeah. Like the format is already there and they already take up less track time and it fits perfectly with being able to charge it for a qualifying or practice in the morning and then charge them all day for the race in the evening. Why hasn't Dorna thought of this? If I find out that any of this has to do with timing and how they move around this stupid millennium dome shoot prop, I'm going to go ballistic. <laughs> if they're like, we need this special thing to do our Super Bowl with. <sighs> okay. Then okay. We can wrap yeah, we've wrapped it up. All right. So, hey, let's take a little bit. You know, we haven't actually played the 
full biker gear club commercial for a while. Let's play that. Take a little break ourselves here, get my notes together, and we'll be back with a special moto history. We are explorers, adventurers, freedom seekers with a desire to find something more visceral than the road already laid out. Finding new, undiscovered paths through every bend. Getting in touch with a lone wolf inside. No longer caged. Free to grow with every twist of the wrist. Riding gives us focus. Focus gives us clarity. Clarity directs our attention to what matters most. Biker Gear Club's curated boxes gives you the ability to keep you and your machine primed to go wherever you want all year long. Get your box by subscribing at bikergearclub.com. Come ride with us. We're going places. All right, didn't that sound all fancy and professional? Remember, go to bikergearclub.com slash nokomoto to win the monthly Biker Gear Club box giveaway. Remember, it's just for Nokomoto listeners. If anyone from Cleveland Moto, if any of their listeners get this, I will drive across the country and kick them in the nuts. Only for our listeners. <laughs> I don't know why I enjoy saying that so much. Um, like my whole life, our exclusive giveaway for whoever and such. Okay, so... We're going to do, I guess it's a follow-up to episode, what was it, 11 or 16, whenever you did the history on Suzuki? It's a long time ago. It's been over a year since we've done a manufacturer history, and I really like these. So I've been obsessed with Bimota, which should be no secret. I've talked about it like three episodes in a row now or something. And so I've done some reading up on the history, and this company is freaking fascinating. So let's dive into it a little bit. So in 1972, we've got Massimo Tamburini. He's an amateur racer. And him and his friends, Valerio Bianchi and Giuseppe Mori, are three friends who amateur race, ride motorcycles, and for their day jobs are HVAC repairmen. Okay. Yeah. Now, Tamburini crashes a fairly new or brand new CB750 in a race and doesn't really have the cash to replace it. So being a pretty handy guy and a bit of a visionary decides he's going to salvage the motor and rebuild the rest of the bike around it. And he doesn't just do this successfully. He knocks it out of the fucking park. And instantly, this is like, everyone goes, okay, this bike has to be a thing. We have to make this. Other people want this. It becomes a hot bike, and it's called the HB1 because we've got Bianchi, which is the B. We've got... Um, uh, Giuseppe Mori, that's the Mo, and Massimo Tamburini. I think I got this wrong a little bit in the last episode. I was doing it from memory. I have it written in front of me now. So, B Mota, their names together make it. So, they call it the HB1. 
a Honda Bimota Model 1. This bike is something like 60 pounds lighter than the CB750. And all that, the motor is the same, unchanged, but the steering, like everything is just levels beyond. And so they sell it as a kit. So to get this kit and a CB7, because and a CB7 motor, it's like to obtain an HB1 at the time cost something like three times just buying a CB750. Because mm-hmm. you essentially had to buy a CB750 or... If they were going to sell you an HB1, Bimota had to buy a CB750 and then turn it into one. Because Honda refused to just sell them engines. In fact, all the Japanese manufacturers refused to just sell them engines. And, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The Japanese at the time were trying to trade on reliability and power and a balance of both. And they were making somewhat compromised motorcycles, and they knew it. You know, if you think back then, they were still on the cutting edge, and bikes were getting faster and faster and better and better. And for consumers, that was definitely enough. And to mass produce these frames, it, they, they kind of had to leave a little bit hidden inside them, right? So the idea they didn't that... Want, so you're saying they didn't want... Bimota to take those engines, soup them up, and have them, well, one, show them up in the amount of power they were putting out, but also not have them all exploding. No, and no, it didn't have to do with the motors, because Bimota never really did much to hop up the motors themselves. Where Bimota really shined was going no compromise on the frames and the bodywork and the the components of the motorcycles that the factories really had to skimp on, you know, for uh, engineering reasons or cost reasons and manufacturing reasons. The motorcycles all had to be somewhat compromised. So what Bimota was making were kits. These were essentially kit bikes. And some street legal, some not. And they ended up making bikes out of a lot, basically all the great engines of the time from 1973 until a few years ago. I mean, you make a list of great engines. Uh, they, they've they all been turned into a Bimota, right? All, mm-hmm. You know, the Jixers, the, your CBRs, your, your Ninja, you know, ZX-10Rs, all those engines, you know, all the leader bikes, all the 600s. Yeah, anything that was a sort of race competitive category engine, you know, and Bimota made a no compromise frame and, and body around it and turned it into everything the bike could be, right? What if an R6 cost $48,000? That's what Bimota made, right? Mm-hmm. So that's their original thing. And if, if one of these names that Tamburini especially sounds familiar He's sort of like Pierre Turbulanche, like a, a legend within the motorcycle design world. This is the guy that also designed the Ducati 916 and the MV Augusta F4. So when you go back and look at these old bikes and then those Ducatis and MVs, you kind of get like, oh, okay, I see. I mean, there's some, th- this guy was a real genius with this stuff. So let's skip to 1977 
they make the first bike that's really a breakout, like a big breakout. All of it's been very, very small batch. This is the first one they're making in any real big number and starts winning races. And that's the KB1. So this, I think it's their first leader bike. So this is a KZ1000 motor, essentially a Z1 motor, right? Mm-hmm. And it's great. Like everything's wonderful. You know, around the time they're doing the Z1RTC and it's a disaster. And I guess this would be around the time also you had people like um, Craig Vetter making the mystery ship out of this bike as well. Well, here comes Bimoda with the best one. Like it's not even fair. Um, we got a, a bunch of other things happening around 80. I mean, a whole bunch of models start coming out. They're just pumping different bikes out every year. They're never making anything for more than a year or two. They're never making more than a couple hundred of anything throughout all these years. They're just pumping out all kinds of different super exotic bikes in kit form. And some they're able to sell as complete bikes and it's kind of all over the place and they don't really know what kind of company they are, but it's still very small. It's small batch, and that works. It's exclusive, but it's high performance, but it's not. I. It's all just the right level, and it's not big business. So in 83, Tamburini gets, leaves the company, and he goes to Ducati. And then this guy, uh, Martini, comes in from Ducati. and. They start making, uh, this is where like the, the uh, Ducati powered by Modus starts. And that's kind of another thing. The, these bikes get started getting recognized a little bit more. This is when the Tessie comes out. Mm-hmm. And by Modus starts making big strokes like we aren't just going to make these kit bikes anymore. We're going to try to ramp up production. Somewhere around this time, like mid-90s, they hit 1,250 bikes in one year, which is the highest production they ever hit. And they start doing things like making the Tessie and the Vidu. You know, the Vidu's got like their own engine, in fact. And they're trying to really make production bikes that they think they can sell to the public. And they're going to become like MV Augusta, the super crazy boutique larger brand and it does not work um like this the uh, this dude <laughs> this martini dude uh no it wasn't yeah this martini dude like around like this time uh no no it was marconi this marconi dude that replaces this martini guy Around this time, they start running into big... The Tessie, as we already ex- explained in this episode, was a disaster. It was too expensive. It was too out there. It was too much. The company hurt so bad for money at this point. This Marconi guy licensed out the Bimoda name on cheap Taiwanese scooters. Like, okay. how do you go from some from a name that has the kind of recognition and respect that MV Augusta has to going to cheap Southeast Asian scooters? Yeah, that's that's like a that's a power tool company move. Right. So the, all these really questionable things start happening. Right. As I said, um, in case people don't remember the worst bike in the world we did on the Vidu, 
we explained why the Tessie failed. And we said, well, they thought to themselves, well, let's have another go at this. Let's try to make a production super bike race, you know, GP bike that people can own. I guess they want one more like an actual GP bike. We'll make a 500cc two-stroke, just like they're racing in GP. And of course, it didn't work. Their fuel injection system didn't work. It was a disaster. A huge amount of them were returned. And at this point, the company my actually went into bank bankruptcy. My favorite part about the V-Doo is that they sell they sold an updated model, and the only thing they did to fix it was put carburetors on it. Right. Yeah. It's insane. The now, like, what's gotten by Moda by up to this point in history, or uh, really up through the 80s, was not only did they make these frames and these kits that were lighter and better and flexed in better ways and were just superior to the factory ones, all the other little things around them were built to an insane level. They they all had the just the perfect paint. Like, nothing... Nothing could pass if it wasn't the absolute best. And that's the only thing that really maintained very well for Bimoda was this insane build quality level on everything. You know, you look at the Tessie and everything on its nuts. If you look at the gauges, they're really weird and out there, especially for 1990. I mean, they would look almost somewhat futuristic on a bike today. So... They started losing focus on what was working for them, which was people going, oh, you know, you've got an R1. Well, I've got the Bimoda, you know, YB, whatever. You know, I, we're using the same power plant, but I've got the special thing, right? And you only have to see a Bimoda, any Bimoda, from any year once in person to understand that, it's like these bikes aren't even built on the same planet as the manufacturers they're borrowing engines from, right? Mm -hmm. Everything flows together so perfectly. So when they had this reputation of taking other things and improving them by just essentially having a philosophy of no compromise to starting to produce their own bikes, which don't really have anything else to be judged against, all of a sudden, the magic fell apart, and they were trying to grow too big. And generally today, everyone agrees they should have just stayed small. But they just wouldn't do that. So they kept this, I mean, really from like 2000 on, it was just, I mean, it, there's too many things to go into of how many people bought it and sold it and tried to revive the brand. And they kept making things like, you know, the DB7 and all of that. And they were still making bikes, but always just barely afloat, never making more than a couple hundred of anything until finally, I think last year, the year before, it's like doors closed. Everything's been sold off and all of that. Now, the last update to the website was about 14, 15 months ago where they announced there were still roughly 30 motorcycles you could still buy. They're crazy expensive, and I don't know what the part support or anything will be for them. So uh, there is 
like a company that exists called Bomoda owned by some people, but it doesn't produce anything. And at one point, I think recently the factory or the, the warehouse that everything is in, which was being rented, wasn't even owned. Like the bank came in and threatened to take everything unless the people who owned it like paid off a whole bunch of back rent or something like that. Like there's some weird things going on. I think there's just a warehouse of parts and some complete bikes just sitting there with sheets on them waiting for someone to buy them because they're theoretically worth more than the building that they're in. But that's the extent of what Bimoda is. And the problem is no one knows how to handle this really interesting brand. The The economic climate's been weird for it for, you know, a decade or more. So that's a problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's coming back, but it's, I know at like ICOMA and IMS, there have been some Bimoda booths and things like that for some years leading up to their collapse with people just going out there and fishing for investors. But the whole problem started because no one knew how to handle the brand, right? It's all about growing and making it bigger and producing more bikes and more profits, but it should have always been kept small. And I, you know, and V Augusta has been good about this. They, they realized, Oh, the way to preserve our brand is to shrink it, make it more exclusive. And weirdly we'll make less bikes, sell them for more. And overall we'll actually make more money with less overhead. It's, that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. This thinking was just not around at the right time for Bimoda. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of like, well, to use the tool analogy, it's kind of like with Snap-on. And to an extent, it kind of happens with companies like Kawasaki as well. And it's kind of, we'll find out with Ducati, um, you know, licensing the Chinese electric scooter, where it's like, well... We've got to keep growing. We've got to keep get bigger, bigger, better, more, everything. Just keep growing in any way you can. And then you get like, you know, cheap Chinese uh, air compressors with a Kawasaki badge licensed on it. Right. Or you get, um, yeah, like just truly bottom of the barrel bulk, lowest cost tools from with the Snap-on brand uh branding on them and then you're like well what are you doing you're just hurting your brand and you can't be making all that much off of this and i guess yeah with the bimotas it's more kind of yeah the whole point of it is when they were making kit bikes you had the original and then you had the bimota and then you had something to compare and say hey look when you when you spare no expense and you go full Jurassic Park on this motor, this is what you get. But if you're making your own bike, yeah, you don't have that comparison anymore. Yeah. I. It's so sad because, again, like I said in uh, last week's episode, I don't know that I've seen in person a motorcycle of the same quality. There. So especially when you, I don't know if the Bimoto name was ever tarnished. It was just mismanaged. Like people didn't understand what it was supposed to be at the end. 
especially as they continue. I mean, even now, the company doesn't exist. The website still refers to the Tessie 3D as the bike that really defines the company. No, it's not. It was the bike that defined the company for about the last 15 years it existed. But there was about 25 years before that, that really those early models, the HP1, the KB1, and the SBs, and the YBs, and all the all the souped-up versions of the Japanese, you know, big fours, and the big fours of the big four, really were what the company was about. And they shouldn't have tried to make this big jump into being the Lamborghini or Ferrari of motorcycles, which is really what the Vidu and the Tessie and to some extent, even like the DB7 that I love so much. Why? Why couldn't they be a very small frame specific, but, you know, crazy, awesome styling house slash engineering house like, um, like, uh, like Calyx, right? I mean, they could still exist in some sort of capacity. If Bimota was still really on the top of its game, is it possible Bimota could be a frame producer for Moto2? They're mm. a company uniquely set up to be in that position, right? That's the kind of company Bimota should have been, but no one really had the the vision to see it as just that everyone felt it had to just grow and take on the world of motorcycles. And as a result, we lost it. You know, I agree. Yeah. With something like victory motorcycles, you have to go all out. We're going to compete with Harley or we're going to die trying. Well, they died trying, I guess, but you know, that's what you have to do there. Well, if you're boutique, you don't have to grow, right? That's the mm. whole point of being boutique. It's so frustrating because you really do owe it to yourself to try to find one of these bikes in person to look at because it's it's automotive art on the highest level. And try to look into more of the history of Bimota too. It's extremely frustrating. I probably had to pull all the information from like six or seven different places. Nothing, no one's really done a large write-up or written a book. You can go to the website for the Bimota Museum, and it doesn't even tell you jack shit. In fact, their own collection of bikes is rather incomplete. Like, It's not a well-documented thing, the story of this company. So I especially wanted to talk about it. So hopefully everybody knows a little bit more. If someone says, oh, yeah, that weird, isn't that a weird company? I'll be like, oh, yeah, they were this weird frame designer and styling house, and they made the best versions of all these engines, and they won a bunch of races, and they they did this, and they made these weird bikes <laughs> towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s, and it it all fell apart, And you know, but they're beautiful. You got to look at them. You know, hopefully everyone knows something now and they learn a little bit something about motorcycles. I hope I spit out just a lot of weird, random things about my motor there, but it's hard to piece a good story together. I don't know. One day someone needs to pay us to actually call up all these people on the phone rather than just spend a lot of nights alone in front of the computer, just trying to find whatever information we can. So, yeah, have we got anything else to add on the end here? Uh, I think that's a show. 
Yeah, I think it's another good shorter one for us. Kind of liking doing these shorter ones lately. <laughs> um, okay, so with that, I guess we'll start closing this one out. Everyone, again, remember, if you have any capacity to help out Rocco Landers, you absolutely should do that. Next, you can send your emails on anything you want to talk about. Oh, we didn't read Matt's email yet. Oh, yes. This is an interesting quick little thing. We only got one email this week. It was a pretty good one. We went back and forth. I found an email we missed. It got, well, it went into our weird promo section of our, of our email. But from our Australian listener, Matt, initially had some harsh words for me calling the CBR300R a vegan motorcycle. But don't worry, just like I tell people during the disclaimer, we were able to hug it out and we came to a place of peace, I thought. But then he told me, hey, by the way, I'm test riding this weird electric thing tomorrow. And that's where shit gets weird. So what what exactly is the thing he test rode there, Swigs? So this is, it's called a Super Soko TC. This yeah. might be just total slander, but if you look at a picture of this next to the Buell, like Eric Buell's fuel concept thing, the fuel might just be a dressing up and rebadging of this thing. Now, my laptop's died here, but I did do some research on this vehicle, and it's definitely made in Asia cheaply. This is totally a Chinese sort of special product. And as we've mentioned before, weirdly, the Australians have to be these strange, like, test lab rats to see if something can make the jump to the European and American markets. So they're being subjected to this strange thing right now. And I need to do more research, but I have strong suspicions that what Eric Buell is trying to do is rebadge one of these things. I don't know about that. If not, he's borrowing heavily. Well, I mean, this is kind of a shape that most electric bikes will be because the batteries, because the batteries can be kind of whatever shape you can put the cells together in. They're it's all going to be disturbingly close, though. Uh, I'm going to have to disagree with you there. But, well, I mean, one thing to say is every single major, any, every single successful electric motorcycle is going to be ripped off. Yeah, I guess that's true. And there's no way it won't be because. It's very easy to throw together your own cells and put the motor, you know, probably source the exact same motor, the exact same batteries. Right. Throw it together in a frame, copy some styling elements. It's probably significantly easier to copy and rip off an electric motorcycle than it is to rip off the iPhone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I see that. Anyway, reports back on the experience of this were not radically different than I predicted they would be. This thing is essentially is the power of 
an 80cc scooter, maybe a 100cc scooter, not even quite a 125 at best. He said he was able to do 75 kilometers per hour going downhill on it, right? Uh, yeah. So that's what, 45 miles an hour, 50? Uh, yeah, 45, 50. Right. So we're talking 80, 100cc scooter sort of speeds. I mean, yeah, it's got more torque, but that's because it's electric. But it's not its not going to be significantly more useful in your life than a 100cc scooter. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there you go. Um, but the big drop uh, bomb he dropped on us is tomorrow, or, in, or a few days ago as you're hearing this, he's going to look at a Suzuki across. Yes. Which is awesome. And he's only, they're only asking 500 Australian, which is like $320 US or something. Well, it also hasn't run in years, but that's still basically the scrap value it would be here. If someone prop, told, said, here's a Suzuki across in the States with a title, $320, and I just pulled it out of a pond this morning, I'd be like, done. There's no way you can lose with a bike like that for three hundred and twenty dollars. I well, it's weird because you know it's a bike that was fairly prevalent in Aust- in Australia and in Southeast Asia, right? But so there's the the ridiculousness of that bike is just kind of lost on everybody. So. Yeah, they they're routinely in like good running condition going for like $1500, which is like what I essentially what I paid for the um for the CB1000, where it's right. like this is a bike that holds no magic whatsoever. But it's kind of just quietly this ridiculously awesome thing. Well, yeah, well, wasn't the Suzuki across high 40s in the horsepower? 45. 45, right. So right now, Matt said he was riding a Honda CBR500R, which is like, what, 48 horsepower or something? Yeah, it's like that 4851. Right. So he's going to look at a 250 that makes about the same power. It just screams instead so cool it you know it's really the complete opposite of the electric bike he just tested he just tested an electric with it's all torque no no, no power. horsepower and this is like no torque like 17 foot pounds of torque and all peak horsepower at sixteen thousand rpm <laughs> if they get this suzuki to fire up and he gets to ride it, he's gonna get the bends going from one experience to the other <laughs> Anyway, that was that's great stuff. That's exactly the kind of emails we're looking for, Matt. So now I think we are done. Okay. All right. So again, like Matt, send your emails to contact at nokomotopodcast.com. Go to bikergearclub.com slash nokomoto and sign up for the monthly box giveaway. And remember to stay safe and stay tuned. You remember, are you ready to run the outro? Let's do it. And I don't want to die. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Cold.